ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today's conversation includes content that may be upsetting for some listeners. If you or someone you know needs help, Lifeline is always there for you on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Dr Sonia Henry was in her mid-30s when she was overtaken by the desire to run from her own life. She was about to qualify as a doctor after her first career as a physiotherapist when an unfortunate romantic entanglement just before her final exams left her questioning everything. Sonia decided to escape her old life for good and signed up to become a GP in some of the most remote parts of Australia. While working as a GP in places like the Pilbara, Outback New South Wales, the Northern Territory and the Kimberley, she had experiences which have changed her own story. Sonia's book is called Put Your Feet in the Dirt Girl and she's with me today to tell her story. Hello, Sonia. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. Sonia, what led you to study medicine in the first place? Uh, Well, I was a physiotherapist first for actually a good number of years because a lot of people do think, oh, you do physio just to jump into medicine, which wasn't the case. I was really interested in sport. You know, I loved things like the Tour de France. I was a keen skier, tennis player, and I actually really enjoyed being a physio, but I sort of, I guess I wanted a bit of a change and um, medicine seemed like the next kind of step. And as I always say, my mum wanted me to be a doctor, full honesty, (laughs) 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 ha-ha. Mum's listening to this. Um, and um, I got in and it was sort of fate, I guess. I um, deferred for a year because I wasn't really sure. Ended up in Europe, had a job as a physio. This is many years ago, but I broke my arm. So I couldn't work as a physio ah. and I ran out of money. And then I went back to medicine and that was the rest of the story. How did you find the process of training to become a doctor? What was it like for you? It was very difficult. Um, I think anyone who says that it isn't is either a robot or possibly telling an untruth. Um, it was very hard, very stressful. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a, it, medical school is hard and being a junior doctor is even harder. You wrote an article, Sonia, uh, about the, the brutalising culture of medical training. Why did you feel it was really important to put that out there? A number of doctors around my age, so I was in my late 20s, early 30s at the time, had taken their own lives. And I was working a night shift at the hospital um, in emergency and we found out that a colleague of ours had taken her own life. And I remember that was halfway through the shift and we couldn't talk about it. No one wanted us to. So we Mm. got through the shift And I went home, I lived just around the corner in Darlinghurst and I sat on the couch and I thought, this is just wrong. Like these young people have so much to give and like there've been so many um, suicides. There was one common denominator and it was the job. Um, And I wrote an article on my iPhone and I submitted it to an American blog called Kevin MD. I didn't put my name to it because I was frightened of my workplace, obviously, you know, speaking out, whistleblowing. And I'm, it was shared so widely that I couldn't believe it. And that's when I thought people must have, it must have resonated. What do you think it is about that training process and that pressure and that life that results in those terrible consequences for these really talented young doctors? I mean, probably a combination of factors. You know, this old archaic way of training, which is I suffered, therefore you will suffer, 
interventions have sort of tried to take place that appear to, on the surface, have some meaning. But from what I've been hearing from friends who still work in hospitals, I don't know how much difference there is. And also you've got a very bureaucratic administrative structure who's controlling your life and job, and they don't actually understand what it's like to be on the floor as a doctor. And then there's a shortage of training places, and that creates this vortex where terrible things happen. You then use some of those experiences as the basis for a novel called Going Under about what it's actually like being a young doctor training in that system. Was there much blowback for you after that came out? <laughs> I mean, I guess for me, you know, you write things and you write a book and and then you don't really think about what it's going to be like when it's released. And just before it was released, I remember thinking, oh, what have I done? Um, and actually the response, look, my publishers were very good. We fictionalised it, which... Look, a lot of it was largely obviously based on my own life or experiences I had heard, but that gave me this sort of, I guess, some um, fence to stand behind. Um, and yeah, like I did receive a bit of blowback, but overall the response was very positive. And then there was a lot of talk about change and a lot of interventions and I don't know how much they've really worked. Yeah. Back in real life, um, you became involved with a, a heart surgeon around the time of your final exams. What what happened there? I think I just had the unfortunate um, situation of hitting someone who was very narcissistic um, and who had the capacity to lie without fear and without guilt. Um, and I am, I think, a dangerously empathetic person for my own well-being, um, and I give out friendship very easily. And I think that was a mistake in hindsight. Um, but it was very damaging and it didn't just damage my heart. I think it damaged my soul and the way that I see people and I see the world. What did he tell you about his family and his situation? Oh, that he was separated. He, you know, had hated his life. He wanted to change. Um, he was desperate for a friend in a system that was very brutal uh, and I, I guess because I'd written about all of this stuff, I was a good target. And I've read a lot about these personality types since that time, and I do believe that they target empathetic people who are in vulnerable positions. And at the time, for a few different reasons, I was. Yeah. And I'm not proud of myself. I think I was very stupid looking back. But look, you learn, you know, you live and you learn. Don't you? <laughs> yeah, and I've learned. <laughs> what, what did you find out about what was really going on in his life? Ah, oh, it was, he was so persistent and so, um, so, uh, over the top with his, uh, I guess his affection for me. I'd never experienced anything like that. And I'm um, a friend of mine. Um, I was working a night shift at the hospital, um, had access to a mother's and bub's Facebook group. And, um, she said to me, oh, I don't think he's separated because he had been at one point. So I think it's easy to tell lies when there's truth and lie kind of mixed together. Mm. And um, she started sending me screenshots of um, of his actual life, uh, his wife and children. There were two children, of the one that didn't exist apparently. And um, I think when I saw that, I... I felt like such a fool, not not so much the romantic stuff, but the, the friendship that I had offered, the time that I had taken listening to him over the phone talk about his job and stress and fears and, and, and I had wasted a lot of time and I think all of that was actually just a master manipulation now. Did you confront him? Yeah, of course I did. Um, I'm a straight up sort of person um, and, yeah, and, and then that was even stranger. I mean, most I think men who are caught out in that situation or women would back away but... He didn't. He was sort of like, oh, yes, my life's a disaster. I hate this and I make myself sick and all, all of the things. And that sort of surprised me and that confused me even more. Um, and, and it was a very 
it was a very bad and dark time of my life, yeah. You decided to change things up pretty dramatically, wanted to go overseas, but COVID ruled that out. So you decided to go to WA. What was it like? And where did you go? (laughs) Look, I'm a bit bit ashamed to admit this. I grew up in the country, but for me, on the south coast of New South Wales, my my grandfather was a uh, rural vet who'd who'd come out from Eastern Europe. And on my dad's side, my grandfather was a wool classer. So I guess I had it in the family. But for me, it was always go to uni, go to Sydney. Sydney's where it's going to happen. And then go to a place like London. You know, you sort of have this, I've got to get out of my small country town kind of vibe. And that was my plan, right? I was like, right, I've got a job in Dublin. I'm going to head over there. Then they shut the borders and um, I was, you know, my mental state was in such a bad place that I thought I need to get away as far away as I can. So I joined a remote locum agency and I said, where is your furthest job? And they said there is a solo GP in the middle of the Pilbara region of Western Australia. And like, feels like a few days later, I was on a plane. (laughs) Wow, looking back now, I can't believe I did that. So what does the countryside look like when you're first getting there? What do you see and what what are your senses telling you about where you are, Sonia? Well, I mean, I was flying in the time of COVID too, which was also weird in itself. I mean, there was barely anyone at the airport. I I got to, I like to call it the kingdom of Western Australia. (laughs) Disclaimer, I love Western Australia, but I'd never been there. Um, And so I was, you know, greeted by about 15 policemen in rubber gas masks, you know, interrogating me as to the legitimacy of my paperwork. It was in the early days, so it was very confusing. No one knew if I was meant to be quarantining or not. Anyway, this bloke in a Nakubra hat sort of helps me lift my suitcase to the motel. Next day I fly to Karatha. My parents are freaking out. And then I was driving down the Northwestern Highway, which is some of the most remote parts of the earth. I hadn't driven a car for 12 months. My car had been written off. It wasn't my fault. Can I make that clear? <laughs> in Sydney. I was terrified because I was like, what if something happens? What if I break down? My phone was dying. I didn't know how to change a tyre. And then when I got to the turnoff of the town I was going, I saw the red earth of the Pilbara for the first time and those red tabletop mountains and that amazing sense of time and peace. Yeah, it was incredible. How did that feel for you? It felt like I was somewhere very, very, very old. And I remember like a wedgetail eagle flying above the car. You know, my Aboriginal friends now talk about things like totems and signs. And I I do wonder about that now. I feel like that was a sign for me. It was just the ancientness. I I felt I'd been so stuck in my own head and suddenly there was this wonderful, amazing vastness in front of me. And I just, even now when I'm feeling stressed, I I picture it. And then my dad, when I rang him, when I got to town, my parents thought, you know, he said, you know, I've looked it up. You are in pretty much the oldest part of the planet. And I thought I could feel that, you know, and, and people who have been there have said the same thing. In those vast environments, sometimes It can be scary realising how small you are, but kind of liberating at the same time that it sort of doesn't matter. The things you worry about don't matter because this place is huge. Well, that's how I felt. I felt like everything was just, I was this tiny speck. That's how I felt. I was just a whisper. I, I was nothing. There was this amazing sense of this land will be here long after I am gone and has been here long before I ever existed. And it was a very humbling and really great feeling. It was a bit unclear when you arrived as to whether you were still in quarantine or not. So you you fired up your telehealth 
account. What were the initial patients like that you're seeing through this screen? I mean, it was pretty hilarious. So originally I was put in like a donger, which I didn't even know what a donger was. It's like a mining shed. So there was like no cutlery. There was nothing, but I'm not that domesticated. I thought, oh, whatever, at least I'm somewhere. <laughs> and then it turned out I'd been put in the sort of wrong section and the doctor did get a bit of a better setup, which I was very grateful for. Um, but then they were sort of like, well, you might be able to start work, but we're not sure. So they went to the chief health officer who decided, no, we've changed the rules and no, no, you, you're quarantined. But to be fair, I mean, quarantine in the Pilbara, I had this great outlook onto the red earth. It was quite relaxing. But yes, the telehealth was quite amusing because my patients were sort of like, oh, are you in Perth? And I said, well, no, I'm about 100 metres away. When you started seeing patients, how much of a sense did you get of the difference between what they would present with and what was really going on. People can come in with a sore back, a headache, and then you find out, ah, something else is really happening. In many times, I noticed, particularly in mining towns, um, that I've worked in mining towns since then as well, but particularly out there. So people would come in with, yeah, like a headache or whatever, and then you'd realise that underneath that was, and I guess I understood because I kind of felt the same, it was, you know, actually really a, a huge sense of isolation, loneliness, great mental health burden. And the nearest psychologist was miles away. You know, the mining companies, I mean, this is pretty across the board, make patients and psychologists sign a waiver. So if they tell the psychologist anything, it can go straight back to the mining companies or something very close to that. So I sort of said, oh, well, you can see me then because um, I represent one person and that is my patient. So I was just, yeah, hearing a lot of stories of people who were really depressed and because I was pretty depressed too, I guess, I, I sort of related to it. Um, and, and I think my patients helped me quite a lot as well. Yeah, well, when you're a GP, you have a very unusual relationship with patients, much more so than being a specialist or a surgeon because you spend a lot of time with them. And when you're a GP in a small town, you spend even more time with them. Once you were finally allowed out of quarantine, you made a uh, friendship with a, a woman called Holly. Tell me about Holly. She was the practice receptionist, but really was the practice manager and kind of did everything. And, and we had had led such different lives, but we were quite similar people in personality. And um, she was very blunt, which I appreciated. And we had some fantastic times together and, and she's become one of my best friends. Your friend Holly's husband had a medical emergency. What happened? He had a dangerous heart condition, um, which I knew about, but I thought he was seeing the cardiologist, so I thought it was being managed. And then one night at about 1.30 in the morning, all bad things happen at 1.30 in the morning and good things, I think they say babies are born at that time, I got a phone call um, from the nurse saying that this patient had this arrhythmia, um, they sent an ECG to the uh, doctor on the ground in Perth and they said to get to the medical clinic straight away. I mean, and I trained at St Vincent's in Sydney. I was a pretty cautious doctor. I'm a very cautious doctor. I'm by no means the, you know, the whatever stereotype of rural cowboy or whatever you call it. And um, I knew how dangerous it was. By the time I got into the clinic, I call, had called Royal Flying Doctors who couldn't get there, the Royal Perth, who were very good actually. And I knew, and I called a friend um, who, who sort of helped me out a bit, but I knew that if it didn't resolve itself, so if the heart arrhythmia didn't stop, that he would die. And I also knew that the interventions I was going to have to do on my own, like shock him out of it or give him certain medications that were risky to say the least, there was also a chance that he would die. 
So we ended up going for the most sort of conservative but still dangerous approach and it actually just just worked out. Like he just, he flipped, he reverted, he was fine. What did you do? um, You stimulate something called the vagus nerve, which can throw essentially in layman's terms the heart back into the normal rhythm. Like you can get the patient to blow out their cheeks, you can get them to put their head in a cold water, you can rub the um, carotid artery, like as in there are ways and means of going about it. But I don't know if it was that. I don't know if it was just his fear and the natural adrenaline. Maybe it wasn't as bad as we thought. Like, you know, who knows? And in Sydney, sitting at St Vincent's, it's quite easy to say, oh, well, you could have done this or you could have done that. But when you're out there on your own and you've got no blood gas machine, you've got a really old defibrillator, you've got a flying doctor service that's eight hours away, I mean, it's on you, man. Like, And after that, I remember thinking, uh, this is getting very dicey and I truly understand the tyranny of distance. And sure enough, six weeks after I left, a patient of mine, I got a call, did die. They were very young. The, the interconnectedness of rural and remote medicine, a, a patient's never stand alone. It's someone you know from here or there. Those connections must make it really difficult. Oh, it was horrific. And also because Holly was my best friend and she still is one of my best friends. And I really liked her husband. He's a great bloke. Uh, I mean, he can be, he likes teasing me, but he's, he's a very good guy. Um, and, oh, I can still picture it going in there that night and seeing that red dust outside. Yeah. What do you remember about the next day? I remember being very tired. Um, I had tried to contact my old bud, the heart surgeon, because he probably could have helped me and had said that there was any time, day or night, I could call him. He would answer the phone. But, of course, he didn't answer the phone. And I felt, you know, let down by that and, again, stupid that I had even tried. Um, And I remember, and this is going to sound a bit weird, I remember that evening I, I used to swim as a way to calm myself. I drove out to the airport. Airport is like essentially a red airstrip with nothing just a few flags, and I lay down in the dirt and I just looked up at the stars and I remember feeling that red earth underneath me and it would have looked crazy if someone had appeared and I just remember thinking, what am I doing here? Like, why is this country so vast? Why is this so hard? Why did I become a doctor? Why did my friend and patient nearly die? Why did he not? And you sort of ask yourself these existential questions and... um. And actually I felt a great sense of peace after that, you know, just lying there looking up at at these giant stars in the middle of Western Australia. How do you think that calmed you? I think it's feeling the earth underneath you. I now really believe in the land and the power of the land. Certainly um, my Aboriginal friends have taught me a lot about that, but they're also very generous with their land because I do see it as their land. And a friend of mine, Brad, who lives in a place called Bree Warrener, who's the curator of the museum, I think that's the right term, He said to me, the land does nothing except listen. And if you want the land to help you, it it will. And I I felt that. I I know I I sound mad, but that's how it it felt. It felt like this giant, it wasn't like I got on my knees and said, oh, God, help me or whatever. Like, I think I just knew that I needed something bigger than me to surround me. And it did. You had a really interesting patient up in the Pilbara called the sailor. Tell me about the sailor. The sailor was one of the most interesting people that I've ever met. And it was, like I said, you forge these relationships that, like I describe her as an almost friend because, you know, you're seeing them regularly, but you're not friends because they're their doctor, but, you know. Um, And we had this conversation where she told me about building boats with her brother out of a garage in Frio or Fremantle, as they say, in Western Australia, and that he had actually gone over to work in 
Sardinia, the Algarve, and, you know, I love Europe, always have, and I'd been to those places. And she said, oh, maybe one day I'll get out of the, away from the mining companies and I'll go and build boats with him. And and I remember she said, can you imagine a black fella from Frio building boats out of a garage now building yachts for Greg Norman and, you know, famous people? And I said, it's amazing. Um, and I told her, look, I'm a writer, well, I want to be. And we had this conversation where we met as different people. She wasn't a miner and I wasn't a doctor and we just met as these ideas of ourselves. And I said, one day we'll meet there, we'll meet in Sardinia. And she said, yep, I'll hold you to it. And then, yeah, six weeks after I left, I found out that she had died. She was very young. And um, if she'd been in Sydney, I don't think she would be dead. What had happened? Sorry. She had a stroke. Very young. She was a First Nations patient. So had an 80-year-old in Sydney had the same condition and been five minutes from St Vincent's Hospital, there's a very good chance they would still be alive. And this young person who had so much to give the world and who had such a great impact on me is now dead. How do you get your head around that? I still haven't really. Um, I don't think anyone should be able to get their head around that, actually. Um, and I haven't. And when I found out, I I think I cried for about four hours. I was working out near Burke um, and I went and sat by the river and I just I couldn't stop crying. I, I, the injustice of it just, it was so... It was like someone was punching me in the chest and I still, I mean, I get very emotional talking about it today, but I, it, it wasn't just that a tragedy that a young person or someone you liked had died, which obviously is upsetting. It, it was the injustice. I was working in a place that, that is the economic engine room of Australia and yet this happened because there was no access to anything. That's still happening out there. I mean, rural and remote patients are 28% more likely to die when they don't need to or suffer serious illness or accident. How does that affect your thinking in the way that you're dealing with patients? Because if you become attached to patients, you might get hurt like that again. Well, I always say, I mean, I'm sure there are some doctors who would listen to this and think this girl's so emotional. But you know what? Without emotion and without being a human, and I'm a human before I'm a doctor, how can I be a good doctor? And I think you get desensitised when you work in remote areas for a long time because you get used to it. I'm glad that I'm not desensitised. I'm glad that I still think it's wrong. Because we shouldn't accept this stuff and we shouldn't think it's okay. Yeah, so I, I do wear my heart on my sleeve a bit, which has gotten me, as we've spoken about, into some foolish situations. But um, <laughs> that's okay. Like, you know, I'm, I'm learning to, to deal with it. <laughs> you had a, uh, a handsome ringer turn up in your uh, practice, a bloke called that you're calling Linus. Tell us about Linus. Uh, well, Linus is also a fascinating person. And I emailed Linus because his story was so interesting and he gave me full permission to <laughs> tell these details, um, which I don't know if he regrets now or not, but uh, he actually came to my book launch, which I was very grateful for. <laughs> Linus was also from Sydney. Um, and he said to me, you're from over east. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anyone describe uh, the whole of essentially the other side of the country as being over east. But I guess in the west, you know, you're in the west. He was a ringer, which I learnt was like an advanced cowboy. It was, you know, offensive to use the term cowboy. And he worked out on a big cattle station and um, highly intelligent. But, uh, yeah, read Tolstoy, read Dostoevsky, could speak different languages um, and had a very interesting view of the world. Is there joy in that surprise for you when you don't know who's coming through the door? Yeah, and we actually discovered later on that when he was much younger and I was much younger when I was a physio in Sydney, he actually worked briefly as a runner for one of the barristers upstairs who I knew. Um, so it was almost like we were destined to meet and now we've become good mates. And um, of all places, he said, 
what the hell is a girl from Sydney doing out here? And I said, well, what are you doing here? And he said, we're all running away from something. And I thought, well, isn't that the truth? Sonia, it, it can be tricky in a small community when you're dealing with some intimate requests. What requests did you get from the local pool maintenance man? Oh, <laughs> I mean, you do get this from some blokes sometimes. Not that I blame them. Um, he wanted some Viagra, which is okay. I mean, I have no issues with Viagra, but he did want about 50 repeats. And I was sort of like, I mean, I try my best to meet patients in the middle. Like, I'm a pretty amenable GP, but I was sort of like... Ooh, 50 might be a bit, like, I was like, you're sort of dealing this stuff, you know. Um, I was happy to provide the PBS amount, you know, which was a decent number, but no, he, he didn't like that. And sometimes patients, I think when they seeing, well, I'm not, I'm not that young, but, you know, I have GPs out there offering older white guys, right? So then you're sort of dealing with this younger female and I think kind of irritated him. But I mean, you know, well, what can I do? I couldn't give him 50 boxes of Viagra. <laughs> Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sally Sara. When you're out in the Pilbara, you started having dreams around this time. What were you seeing in those dreams? So I've always had very vivid dreams. Um, when I was a child, if I was, you know, you're too hot or whatever, I would sometimes get up and I guess sleepwalk's the best way to describe it. But I think even though I talk a lot and I write, I'm actually not that great about talking about the stresses of my job. I, I don't think I want to be a burden on anyone. And, and so I think it expresses itself in my dreams. It started when I was an intern. I would have very vivid dreams. So in that kind of a halfway world, I guess, between asleep and awake, I would see things. And a friend of mine, Nina, she's also a GP, she read about them. And the neurologist Oliver Sacks calls them hypnopompic hallucinations. It's people who in that, just that halfway section, when you're just about to wake up, you visualize things almost like they're really there, which can be quite scary. But I kind of trained myself out of it. But in the Pilbara, it started happening again. So I would just be asleep because my phone would ring at all hours. I'd often think I'd hear my phone ringing, but it wasn't ringing. But I would wake up or half wake up, sort of coming out of a dream and I would see like usually snakes, a lot of snakes, sometimes like a man in the corner. And you'd sort of think, oh my goodness, there's someone in my... I mean, I was living in a very isolated part of Australia on my own. I, I had no one with me. And so I would wake up, turn on the light oh, okay, it's just one of my crazy dreams, go back to sleep. But anyway, and then um, I had a patient who said to me, I look very tired. He was an Aboriginal man. And I said to him, well, one, I'm on call, but two, I'm having these weird dreams. And he was a healer from Shark Bay. And I'd heard about healers, but I didn't feel it was my place to find one because, you know, they sort of come to you. And he did, as it turned out. And he said to me uh, during this healing, you know, which was, if anyone had walked in, I don't know what, <laughs> thought would have been going on. Um, he said, I might have to come by and clear out the spirits. He explained it as spirits attach themselves. Like an exorcism or something. Well, I mean, I didn't know, but I thought that he meant physically. So I was like, oh, so you've got to pop over. Oh, you okay. oh, I mean, okay. But he said, no, 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 I'll just come there in my mind. Um, 
And then I felt this great sense of calmness and it was almost like I heard a voice saying to me, it's okay, like it's just him. Anyway, when he came back in for his chest X-ray result, because I was also treating him, I said, you know how you said you were going to come by? (laughs) Did you actually? And he said, yeah. And I thought, this is just unbelievable. And no one would, but my friends who live out there do believe me because they've seen stuff and, you know, Aboriginal culture is not something that should be trifled with it by any means. Um, but yeah, that is a true story. I don't know how to explain it. It's it's a scientifically inexplicable. I accept that completely. But yes, that's what happened. And after that, I did not have one more dream. So you were healing him and he was healing you. Well, yes, I did bulk build the appointment, <laughs> considering the mutual healing. Yeah. You eventually decide to leave the Pilbara and you end up in Western New South Wales, out the other side of... Yep. Uh, out the back of Burke. Dubbo, out the back of Burke. It's a town in your book that you call uh, Rivertown. You drive into Rivertown. What do you see? Oh, well, I mean, I, I flew in um, and so the pilot dropped me off. It was a bit like that scene, I don't know if you've seen it, North by Northwest, where it was a Gregory Peck or Kerry Grant. It was one of them. And he's standing there with his suitcase underneath the sign and there's just dust, you know, and that car rolls up. It, it was exactly like that. So I was just standing there in this red dust and this car rolled up and um, the manager of the clinic was like, you Dr. Sonia? And I was thinking, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's no one else here. Um, and he said... Um, Oh, thank you know, God, you're here. The other doctor, oh, they've left. And I said, oh, I thought that there was another doctor at the hospital. And, and he said, oh, no, she said yesterday after what happened, she's never coming back here ever again. So it's just you, mate. And I, I remember thinking, I mean, I swore actually. Um, and I, yeah, but then I just thought, oh, well, here we go. Here we go again. Yeah. What kind of conditions were you seeing and treating in this town? The kind of conditions you wouldn't be seeing in Darlinghurst or at St Vincent's very often? <laughs> I mean, this was my first, I think, real experience because in the Pilbara I had seen some Aboriginal patients, um, but it was also a lot of white patients and mining is a bit of a different vibe, I guess, whereas the town I was in is like 85% First Nations or Aboriginal. So the first thing I noticed was that I was barely treating anyone over the age of 55. Um, And then my mate Harry, who was the Aboriginal health worker, said to me, oh, Doc, we will die before we can get old. And I remember thinking, right... I was seeing very young people in their 20s with fulminant diabetes. I was seeing tertiary syphilis. I was seeing mental health burdens that are just out of control, untreated. I was seeing people with very strange blood results that that even the specialists at RPA who I consulted couldn't really explain. I truly understood then what is inside the gap and I understood the textbooks I'd read on um, Aboriginal health. Suddenly I was there living it and it it really appalled me, yeah. Did it make you angry? Made me very angry. Um, I remember going home one night and calling my dad and I was just like, Dad, I can't reconcile this. I can't believe that I've lived in Sydney and I, I can't believe this is happening. And, and we've got this, um, we're not meant to say third world anymore, we say developing. But I mean, I have this third world health situation four hours from Dubbo. Like, how is that right? How is that fair? How is this just? How is it even possible? And I'm not going to be able to fix it. Like, I'm just one GP, like, on the run from my life, you know. And, and that's when I became friends with, um, I drove to Bree Warriner and became with, uh, friends with a man called Brad Steadman, who is the museum curator. Or, the, the fish traps there yeah, in Bree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. The fish traps are unbelievable. Um, 
And also, you know, you learn about the massacre that happened near Bree Warren Hospital Creek that not many people, we learn about Mile Creek, you know. I saw a headline in the paper about Mile Creek the other day and I thought, well, what about Hospital Creek? What about all those other massacres we don't speak about? Um, and he taught me a lot about Aboriginal culture and about health outcomes and about the gap and more than anyone um, I've ever learnt from, yeah. You had a unexpected visitor turn up into your life uh, in Rivertown. Buddy, yeah. tell us about Buddy. Oh, so one night I was on the phone to my friend who's living in Copenhagen in Denmark. So she, her and I, I guess, were on these across-world journeys together in some ways. Um, and um, on the phone I saw this little thing outside my back door and I said, oh, mate, I've just, there's something outside the back door. And um, there was this tiny dog with black eye patches with a little stumpy tail like the Lone Ranger. And, I mean, look, I grew up in the country. I knew that I couldn't have a dog living like a nomad, like I, it wasn't a great environment for an animal. And so I, I turned off all the lights and I hid in the living room hoping that the dog would just go back to where it came from. And then I went back and I thought, oh, it's gone. And no, it was asleep by the door. So I went out and I picked her up and I took her to the local shop and I said, do you know who owns this dog? I took her to the houses where no one knew, no one in the town knew. And then Buddy just came with me. And her first trip was on a private chartered flight out of the town I was in. And she travelled with me across most of New South Wales. An amazing dog. Was it good company for you? She was amazing company, but she was almost like my best mate said who came to see me when I was in Condobolin because we used to take Buddy everywhere, like to the pub and Pricey, the guy who owns the Royal, he would let Buddy come in and it was great. You know, amazing people in remote Australia, very welcoming. And um, it was like she knew something that I didn't know. Um, she had this, my friend said that. She said, Buddy always looks at me so judgmentally. <laughs> um, and, and then I took her to my parents for a bit and my parents just fell in love with her. They also didn't want a dog. And Buddy had... She had a, a wonderful life and then um, very tragically at one year old she got T-cell lymphoma and um, and she died and uh, that broke me. <laughs> yeah. I think about her every day. She was an amazing dog. After being out in western New South Wales, the Territory was next on the agenda and a town near Yundamu. What was it like arriving there, the, the working conditions you had? I mean, I wasn't meant to ever go to the Territory again with this is the fate and chance situation of this whole story, I guess. So I was heading back to WA. I, I wanted to go back to Broome where I'd been after I'd been in the Pilbara just for a short holiday. So I, I was meant to work in Queensland for two weeks and then go into WA, but there was a few COVID cases in Brisbane. So my job at the tip of Queensland was cancelled. I got stuck in Brisbane and then because WA considered Queensland as a hotspot, I had to then spend two weeks in the Territory. So I took a job in uh, one of the communities um, in the NT, not realising uh what the situation was going to be like. And um, I don't think many people have been into communities alone in the Territory and, and spoken about it. Um, I mean, it's been in the news now because of Alice Springs and so this is not new information, but I that was probably the most uh, traumatic, it's not quite the right word, um, shocking. It shocked me that Third world doesn't even describe it. And specialists I've spoken to agree, Uganda, sub-Saharan Africa, these are countries we compare this to, and this is in the middle of Australia. When you're talking about the conditions, what, what do you mean? What did you see? So you live inside a donga surrounded by a cage, um, which you can imagine that was a bit of a shock uh, because if there's something that sets off unrest in the community, a death, um, bad weather, violence, uh, so you live inside a cage. 
the medical clinic is always locked. So you have, there's a sort of a panic room set up in there. You're dealing with the sickest people I have ever seen, most of whom speak traditional language and not English, which there are barely any translators for. And you are being faced with this and you're seeing, like my friend Brad had told me, he said, inside the gap is denial, is history. And suddenly I was there alone, 400 kilometres north of Alice Springs, lying inside a donga surrounded by a cage. And I thought, well, this is the gap. You know, this is what happens when you marginalise people to this extent. This is what happens when you have 19-year-olds with mechanical heart valves from rheumatic heart disease where the nearest cardiologist they can see is in Alice or Adelaide or Darwin. This is what happens. You have a situation where in Sydney or wherever we pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, and it does exist because I've been there. With the patients that you saw which case really stays with you from that community? I went to two. Um, it was a it was a woman who came in with a very young baby who had um, bad diarrhea, and she could speak quite good English. And I'd sort of picked up a few words, and so we were able to interact. She was lovely, and her baby was very beautiful. And she said, "I'm worried about baby sick." I could tell it was you know diarrhea, and I was sort of like, "Okay, well the baby looked very well. Obs were very stable, healthy, chubby baby." But her milk wasn't coming, the formula, I think the shop had either shut, there was one shop or it was too expensive. Um, and so she'd been feeding the baby sweetened Coddy's cordial because I understand why, because there was no education and there was nothing else to feed baby. But I, I sort of was trying to explain, oh, well, it's, you, you have to, we, we have to get some formula. So I ran to the other end of the clinic to ask the nurse if we had some information that was easily accessible that would explain that. But by the time I got back, she'd gone. And I remember walking out the front of the clinic and I had this piece of paper that was like a big, happy Aboriginal woman drawn on the front with some advice about breastfeeding or whatever. And I remember it falling onto the dust and I remember jamming my boot into it and just watching it disintegrate. And then this baby dingo appeared and I was about to pat it. And then the cleaner of the clinic came out because I didn't know anything about dingoes. And he was like, doctor, stop. No, because baby dingoes will you know, bite your hand off. Yeah, and I thought, wow, like you go to Sydney, you know, you've got a midwife, you've got Tresillion, you've got mother care, you've got every access you need and out there that was happening. What did that teach you? It taught me that we have many countries existing inside our one country and it taught me um, that, you know, when there's lack of access and lack of awareness, this is these are the people who see the brunt of it. It's okay for me. I'm a GP. I'm white. I can go back to Sydney. I can do whatever I like. Not so much out there. And if people don't even realise the disadvantage that they're facing because that's just their situation that they have, that's their context, then nothing's ever going to change, is it? How did you change your medicine when you were working there? Oh, well, I look, there's some very good Kimberley guidelines. And also I would go from jobs where I was alone to jobs where I had lots of, oh, lots of support, probably overstating, but lots of good doctors like Kananara, for example, where I have a lot of friends and very great doctors there, you know, working for WA Country Health Service and the Aboriginal Health Service. And I learned a lot from them. I also had to do like, I mean, I did a few courses and stuff, of course, but 
I also familiarized myself with guidelines wherever I was because they're very helpful. And any opportunity I had to ask colleagues for things, I would. And any, like I'm, like I said, I'm not a heroic GP by any means. If I could ring specialists at any hospitals, I always would. And they're very helpful out there, I must say, because they know how isolated it is and they know how alone you are. And and I learned a lot. In fact, I think my medicine is now much better, actually, than it was, and much broader, certainly. What's the best advice that someone gave you in this community? Oh, it was, you can only do your best. <laughs> and I thought, well, my best isn't really good enough. But that was a cardiologist who told me that. And I think that that made me feel better, at least, because I felt like such a failure. You know, I've, I've had all these people say to me, you've done so much good. And I thought, I haven't done much good, you know, like what good can I do? I think there were some patients that I made a, a bit of a difference to, um, but you feel so helpless because the, the breadth of the issues are so far beyond me. Um, and I hope, I guess, that my book maybe at least raises some awareness and gets to maybe some government levels where some meaningful change happens. I don't know. You eventually lobbed back into Sydney. It can be really weird yeah. coming to a place of plenty when you've been somewhere remote. What were the little things that you were noticing around the neighbourhood and at work that really spun you around when you got back? Well, it's funny. There's two things, actually. Once I flew to Perth and I felt this and Sydney. So I remember going to Perth after I'd been, I don't know, somewhere up there. And I remember going to this bakery to get a coffee. And I remember seeing these little coloured macaroons and they had them in like so many colours and there were so many of them. And I stood there thinking, how did they make those? How did they, who buys this stuff? Like the amount of effort that's gone into this when I'd been in a place where there was, like, you know, one shop. So that was sort of astounding. And the lady, I think, thought I was crazy. I'm standing there just looking at the macaroons. Um, and then I was in Sydney and I actually took a job for two weeks as I got stuck back in Sydney in Bondi and I lasted that out, you know, and then I was like never going back. Uh, I mean, <laughs> look, well, I'm not saying, look, wherever you are, your problems are relative. But imagine having people who are just expecting to see a paediatrician for almost no reason and just getting an appointment, which, you know, power to them, that's totally fine. Or getting an MRI in a day and the result back in a day. Mind-blowing after where I'd been. Mind-blowing. And we're all Australian, right? It's not like we identify as being something else because we live in a different part of the country. Mm. Did you struggle with that at all? Oh, of course. I think ethically, I, of course, I struggled with it um, because how can you not if I think you have a, a moral compass? And that's why I now will spend at least six months of the year working rurally and remotely for the rest of my life. I mean, I'm going back to Broken Hill on Monday and then I'm going back to the Kimberley for four months. Like I... You can't, or I can't anyway, you can't see things like that and then unsee them. You can't see that kind of injustice. And look, I think the difference I make as an individual GP is pretty minimal, but at least I'm trying, you know, and if I can maybe encourage a few other people to, and a friend of mine actually did a few weeks in Kununurra who lives in Sydney and he really enjoyed it. And I thought that was positive. How do you get rid of that feeling of shock? It took me a long time and I actually spoke to a friend of mine who's a um, a lawyer and he's done a lot of work with um, Aboriginal legal stuff and, and um, he said to me, it almost sounds like you do have a bit of, I don't want to throw this around lightly, but something along close to PTSD. And I think it is when you see things in the country where you expect to see something else and you realise that you're in this place that most people kind of pretend doesn't exist because for them it may as well not that's what shocked me. It, it shocked me that I had not known that and it shocked me that most people don't and, and it, 
it was, and also the fear of being so isolated and realising how isolated people are does change your perspective. It must be even more complicated if when it's within the country. I remember coming back from some places overseas and I'd come back at Christmas time and I'd be in a shopping centre in the food court just watching people eat, like the amount of food and abundance yeah. that we have. Um, and people would kind of look around at me because I'm staring at them while they're no, wolfing down that. their lunch. Mm. Yeah, and you sort of, it's. I, I think, I mean, you know, you've been overseas in war zones and which I've great respect for but to see it in your own and, and there's a woman called Kim Mahood who who writes about this and I've read quite a lot of her work and I really related to what she said she said the conditions in uh, remote Aboriginal communities in the territory are equivalent to that of going to Antarctica essentially in terms of the preparation that you would need but yet we don't have really that situation we don't have that preparation. What does your working life look like now Sonia? Oh, well, like I said, I'm heading back to Broken Hill. Um, I've got a bit of a regular gig there. I mean, Broken Hill is a very well-serviced town. Um, and then I'm going back to the Kimberley. I've got a lot of mates there. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that red dirt again. And I've actually I've spent the last few months in Ireland working. Um, I'm half Ukrainian, so I did a bit of work with Ukrainian refugees. And I also needed to get out of Australia and see something different. It was meant to be a holiday, but then, of course, I took a job. <laughs> but now I'm back and, yeah. What do you think the future will hold with your writing? I don't know. I was saying um, to my boyfriend, I'm very happy now, I just want to let everyone know, um, <laughs> that um, I think I just want to write crime fiction or something, <laughs> maybe something less um, less personal and less... Um, and also the funny thing too is the last few months I've been very, very happy and the funniest thing is that everyone said, oh, so you, you've been in Europe, you must have written another book, which sure, you just produce a book. Um, but I, I said I think when I'm happy and I'm satisfied and I'm at peace, I don't need to write as much, so... Who knows, maybe I don't have another book in me. I'm not sure. I don't want my publishers to think I've given up. But <laughs> at the moment, I think I'm just enjoying not writing um, and just living my life. How much of a, as a writer now, how much of a window into life is it being a GP? Because there's great disclosure seeing people coming in. Oh, of course. It's a great privilege to hear people's stories. And I had to be very careful when I wrote the book. That was at the forefront of my mind. And, you know, I've changed lots of details to make it de-identifiable, make them de-identifiable. And anyone who's featured in the book as they are has given me express permission in writing and read their bits before they, you know, of course that is. But also I think patients have wonderful stories. I learnt so much from my patients. Uh, I have so much respect for people who live in regional, remote and rural Australia. I am sorry that I didn't understand what it was like out there and I'm so glad that I do and I hope that I have told their stories in a way that best reflects what they taught me. What kind of doctor do you want to be in the future? I, I want to be a kind doctor and I think I'm sick of being ashamed of being emotional and caring and, you know, I want to be a kind doctor and I want to be an advocate for people who can't speak for themselves and I want to continue to speak as well for people like friends of mine who work in regional remote Australia who are, are in systems where it's very hard for them to speak out. I guess I'm a bit of a rogue um, individual. Like we always say that Broome doesn't have an MRI machine. If Twiggy Forrest is listening to this, can you please buy the one? <laughs> I know you're a philanthropist, um, you know, and I can, I have used this platform. I'm very surprised by the amount of attention this book has gotten and, and very grateful for it. Um, we talk about my story. You know, this is funny. People think because I wrote a book already, it's so easy to write another one. I Googled how to write a memoir because I didn't know how to. And I remember reading something that said, you write a book 
that is about your experience, but the reader takes something away from it that is about them, that's not about you. And my book is about things that happened to me, but it's about things that are much, much, much bigger than me. You know, I realise I am not special. I am just a person who ended up in a situation who used writing as a way to explain it. And as a doctor, I want to say to my patients, it's about you. I listen to you and this is your story. It's not mine. We were talking before about you being in the Pilbara and getting that sense of scale with this vast landscape around you. With the landscape of medicine and all that's demanded of you, do you feel that smallness sometimes as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I think that, you know, when you realise that you can only do so much, that you kind of, you have to advocate for your patients and you have to sort of accept that you can only do so much. Because I think sometimes doctors fear this. They don't want to bring a specialist or they don't want to, because they want to look, I don't want to look like I don't know. Whereas I was like, well, of course I don't know. This medicine is very complex. And, and I, I had no shame in in asking for help because I recognised how small I was in, with these vast problems. Mm. So you feel comfortable with that? Oh, 100%. You have to. I think you can't work in a place like that and feel like you have all the power. You have to use resources when you can, even though it's scary sometimes bringing up specialists who may be tired and angry or whatever. You, you have to do it. You can't. You have to try and practice your city medicine in the bush if you can, um, because people deserve the same quality of care. It doesn't matter where they are or what their postcode is or what their last name is or what their skin colour is. They deserve the same care. Is that red dirt going to stay with you for a long time? Well, when I was at the motel trying to get up to Karatha, this bloke at the reception said to me, you know, where you're going? I mean, they thought it was so weird that this girl from Sydney was going out there alone, which I guess it was pretty weird looking back, but... He said, where you're going, they say, once that red dirt gets on your skin, it never really washes off. Um, and I think that is true. Yeah, so, yeah, I did. I put my feet in the dirt and, um, well, they're often in the mud. But, you know, um, yeah, I, I think that's true. Sonia, thank you. Oh, thanks, Sally. It's been great. The journey. <laughs> thank you. Sonia Henry was my guest on Conversations today. Sonia's book is called Put Your Feet in the Dirt, Girl. I'm Sally Sara. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Ever feel clueless during smart convos? Same here. Can't keep up with everything? Don't sweat it. We're in this together. I'm Tegan Taylor, unveiling your new curiosity quencher, Quick Smart. I'll be chatting with clever people about current topics like the ADHD boom, opting out of the law, Disney as a religion, and AI stealing our jobs. Just give me 10 minutes, once a week. I'll be quick, you'll be smarter. It's Quick Smart. Find it now on the ABC Listen app.